Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In this audio from 2019, the Arkansas Senate debates the Convention of State's resolution. Arkansas would become the 13th state to adopt our Article 5 application calling for a convention to propose term limits, fiscal restraints, and other limits on the scope and power of the federal government. Senate Joint Resolution 3 by Senator Stubberfield, applying to the United States Congress to call a convention of proposing amendments pursuant to Article 5 of the United States Constitution. Senator Stubblefield. Thank you, Governor. You're welcome. Thank you, Governor. Most of you have uh, put a handout on your desk uh, showing what the uh, Article 5 poll showed in Arkansas, and it showed that almost 70% of the people in Arkansas favor an Article 5 convention. You know, when I woke up this morning, I thought about something that happened, and uh, Senator Bonds brought something up about President Clinton the other day in the committee meeting, and I thought about, you know, I remember in 1999 when Senator, uh, President Clinton's Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich, he came out one morning and he wrote an op-ed, and in that op-ed he said this, he said, <clears throat> there's no need for the American people to, to worry about the interruption of the work of Congress because of the impeachment proceedings, because everyone knows that the Federal Reserve controls the monetary system, the economic system. And they also know that the IMF controls foreign policy. And they also know that the President of the United States has the power to declare war. None of those are constitutional. But he also added, and let me, let me finish that up. He said, the dirty little secret is out that both houses of Congress have become totally irrelevant. You can look that op-ed up. That's the same sentiment <clears throat> that's prevalent today, but it's been prevalent for many decades before he made that statement. This Article 5 is not a, it's not a Democrat. It's not a Republican issue. This is an American issue. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. We are faced with a debt, in fact, some of you may have got the email yesterday from the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office and the Government Accountability Office. We're, in, and in that email it said, we are in uncharted waters. In other words, we owe $22 trillion in debt with another $120 trillion in unfunded liabilities from Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, pension funds, student loans. That doesn't even take into account the personal debt owned, owned by Americans. We are in uncharted waters. And some say, well, you know, this could go on. We really don't worry. And most Americans really don't have a clue because most of us really don't understand how much $22 trillion in debt is. And that same attitude prevailed among those who had never experienced uh, <clears throat> an economic earthquake like those who lived in the Great Depression did. My mother and dad, many of your moms and dads, and certainly our grandparents, who lived through the Great Depression, and they realized that the Great Depression didn't, didn't just happen overnight. In fact, it was a culmination of more than two decades of economic abuse. The promise of prosperity built on debt had tempted a lot of conservative, normally conservative Americans 
to risk all that they own. And guess what? They lost. And now we have 85 years, 85 years of economic abuse with no side and end. I mean, no end in sight. What do you think? Does anybody in this chamber today really believe that Congress is going to wake up in the morning all of a sudden and say, we've got to cut our spending? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that anything is going to change in Washington, D.C.? You know, Senator Flowers was talking this morning to city county local, and I've worked with most of you for six years, some of you eight years. And there's one thing about state legislatures that, that I have become aware of. We may not agree on a lot of different things, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, but most of the time we, we agree on how to, I mean, we don't agree on how to get there, but we agree on most things. We just don't agree on the avenue of how to get to that place. But we get along and we work together. We even like each other, Senator Cheatham. That's not so in Washington, D.C. Let me tell you something. They give these speeches in Washington, D.C. and talk about the interest of the American people. But you know what it's really about in Washington, D.C.? It's about maintaining power. It's about buying committee chairmanships and buying leadership positions for millions of dollars. You don't have to watch the news very long to realize that Washington, D.C. cares very little about the American people. I, I will agree, there are a few up there, there are some good people in Washington, D.C. who have fought hard, but they are basically pushed aside because they don't go along with the flow. You know that as well as I know that. Congress has, been known, <clears throat> Congress has known this all along. They've known the kind of financial condition this country's in and what we're facing economically. They know this, and they know it's not sustainable. Senator Ingram and I talked about this a couple of months ago. We agree. The, the economic path we're on is not sustainable. We cannot continue to owe this kind of money. Just yesterday, the CBO said, in eight years, on the current path, we'll owe $30 trillion. $30 trillion. Now, most of you understand how government, the budget process works in, in Washington. Mandatory spending, discretionary spending. Back in the 60s, mandatory spending, the social programs, made up 35% of the budget. The discretionary spending, the the military, education, infrastructure, that made up 75% of the budget. And we all know that today, those have flipped. They're just the opposite. And with $22 trillion in debt, in five years, just the interest, if there's no increase in interest. And by the way, 10 year, the 10 years ago, the bid to cover ratio on our U.S. debt, Senator Hickey, we talked about this, 3.8. Today it's 1.8. If it drops to 1.1, we can no longer borrow any money. Now, what do you think happens then? We have a Congress that's known this all along, and yet they refuse to address the problem. And yet, why should they? There's no incentive to, as long as they can keep getting reelected and maintain power in Washington.
You and I have witnessed the greatest generational theft in this country's history. You and I, some of us that are older, may not experience it, but I can assure you, your children and your grandchildren and their children will experience it. Washington, their consensus is it's better to sink the nation with debt than to rock the boat to reform. We have surrendered control of our finances to a group of people that are so ignorant in basic economics, they don't even know how to run the country. Most of us grew up, our mom and dad, I run a business. My dad told me when I was a boy, you cannot continue to spend more than you take in. We all operate under that. That is a very simple economic fact. You cannot continue to spend more than you take. Why don't they do that in Washington? Our state does it. Most other states do it. Not true in D.C. 65% of all state budgets are controlled by Washington. We have nothing to say about it. 65% of all state budgets are controlled by Washington. And yet they continue to pass laws <clears throat> restricting the rights and freedoms of the majority of Americans while they exempt themselves in the process. I doubt many of you know, and I can assure you that most voters don't know, that Congress has exempted itself from civil rights, from anti-discriminatory laws. They've even, even exempted themselves from our retirement program, our school system, and even the normal daycare systems. They don't follow the same guidelines that we do. I'm going to read to you something and see if you recognize these words. <clears throat> we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given, never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. You know who said that? You know who said it, Senator Chesterfield? Dr. Martin Luther King said that. You know who he said it to? <clears throat> he was speaking to those who criticized his civil, right, civil rights protest. They wanted him to wait for a better time for his movement to fight for racial equality in the United States. They argued that one day the culture would accept equal rights of African Americans. But Martin Luther King knew that wait almost always meant never. He knew that those in power would never willingly cede their authority, and it was up to the African American community and their supporters to fight for their rights as American citizens. And thank God he did. Well, that same principle that Martin Luther King believed in is the same principle that the vast majority of Americans believe in today. That the overreach and the abuse that's been perpetuated by the federal government will never end until we the people demand our freedom. There's only one way to do that. And it was provided for us in the Constitution. It's called Article 5. And it was the second clause in Article 5. Two days before the Constitutional Convention ended. Just two days. A guy by the name of Colonel George Mason stood up and he said, Gentlemen, we've made a mistake. We have given, we have given Congress the ability to uh, propose amendments, but we haven't given that same power to the people. And then, and then he asked this question. Do you believe that any government that becomes tyrannical would even propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? 
Now, we know this to be true because all you have to do is read Madison's notes. James Madison was a very good note taker, and he wrote that down. And he wrote the words, Nin come. Two little words. Those words meant no comment, no debate. In other words, all those men that were assembled there, they found that that proposition was so obvious that the states would even have to restrain the federal government. They didn't even debate the issue. They never brought it up. And so they unanimously adopted the second clause of Article 5, giving the people. And by the way, if I remember correctly, in the Constitution it says that the powers delegated to the federal government were to be few and defined. Those to the states would be numerous and indefinite. You know what's happened? We have, we have drifted so far from the original intent of the Founding Fathers, from the moorings of our Constitution, that we have flipped roles. Now the states have no power. The federal government has all the power. They merely use us as, as regional agencies to funnel our own tax dollars back to us through individual mandates, sometimes through unfunded mandates. And if you think that's going to get better, we can't even represent the people in our own state the way we want to represent them for fear of breaking a, a federal regulation or a federal, federal rule. They unanimously adopt this second clause of Article 5. Seventy-five percent of all Americans say the federal government is too big, is too powerful, too involved in our lives. For so many years, we've trusted Washington, D.C. with our financial security. They have betrayed the trust. They've jeopardized the future of our children and our grandchildren. You and I have witnessed, I told you before, the greatest generational theft in American history. Every U.S. congressman and every U.S. senator understands the cost of refusing to confront the exploding national debt. Like I said, we may not feel the, the results right now, but I can assure you someday our children and our grandchildren and their children, <clears throat> they will feel these results. And yet this coming crisis is one of Congress's own making, having promised far more in benefits than they ever made provision for the American people to pay for. And the founders knew they knew the depravity of man. They knew the sinfulness of man. And they knew what power does. It's very addictive. And so they gave us a way to get out of this mess and to rein ourselves back in. Let me conclude by saying this. Our founding fathers, I believe, were men of faith. They had to be. They risked their lives, their families' lives, their fortunes, all for freedom. And for 180 years, we were a nation of faith. America was a nation of faith. That's not, that's not true any longer. We've become a nation of fear. Because we expect, we've traded in our independence for security, for promises from the government. I know because I, I spent a lot of time with my granddad who worked till he was 90 years old. He wouldn't take his social security because he didn't want to have anything to do with the government. Until finally one of his eight daughters 
his youngest one, no boys, talked him in and, and convinced him that that was his money. So he finally went down and took it and gave it to his girls. We don't have that, we don't have that independence, that faith anymore because we're so afraid that the federal government is going to mess up and we're not going to get our checks and we have to rely on them for everything. We've become a nation of dependence, not independence. And that faith was taken from us starting back in the 1960s when nine robed judges began to take us down a path of removing the very foundation of our faith, which is God himself. They took God from our education system. You see, the, the, real, the real threat to our Constitution today is not posed by, by a convention of states. A convention of states is merely a meeting where you propose amendments. You have gotten emails and letters calling it a con-con. A constitutional convention is for the purpose of writing a constitution. We already have a constitution. This method is simply restore the Constitution to its original meaning, not rewrite the Constitution. It's basically that simple. So the threat today is not, not a convention of states, but rather an out-of-control federal government. And our founders telegraphed, telegraphed that message to us, showing us that there's a way back inside the fence of the Constitution. So with that said, members, I uh, take any questions. Thank you, Senator. Members, are there any questions? You've heard a presentation of the bill. Any questions? Oh. Senator Bond, you're recognized, sir. Well, I hadn't planned on questions, but you mentioned at the beginning our exchange that we had in the committee. And so setting aside, I think, our agreement on the exploding debt, uh, the, the constitutional question I have in reviewing Article 5 is there's nothing that limits the convention that I see in the Constitution once the convention is called. And that's my concern. I know there was a response from that in the committee. I just want to give you an opportunity to, to give that here. Yes. And have one other comment. And let me, let me make it clear that there are three subject matters that are included in the application from 38 states. And those three subject matters, nothing can be brought up outside of the scope of physical restraints, limiting government, and term limits. Any amendment brought up outside of those, those uh, subject matter, the it will be called out of order. It won't even be considered. They have to aggregate. The 34 state, and I know a little bit about aggregating because I'm a farmer. When you dump a load of gravel and you run over it and it becomes flat, those gravel aggregate. And it's the same way with these applications. They have to line up with these three subjects. If not, anything brought up outside the scope of these three subjects will not even be considered. In fact, that delegate, thanks to your amendment, but it would happen anyway, Senator Hickey, could be brought home and in Indiana even charged with a felony. So all, this, all these emails you've been getting talking about a runaway convention, and by the way, even if there's an amendment offered, takes 38 states to ratify that amendment. Only 13 could block any amendment, 13 states. It's a, the founders, someone said, why has this never happened? I'll tell you why it's never happened. 
It is a very difficult process. And the founders set a very high bar because they did not want the Constitution amended all the time. It's a very high bar. Things have to get really bad, which they are. Well, then, just to follow up on that, I think that's where we have a legitimate disagreement. I'm, I don't see in the Constitution where it can be limited. Folks on your side, and you see that it can. So I just want to point that out. Well, Thank you. Senator Bond, I would say that my example of Robert Reich, those are not in the Constitution either. We fought, we fought three wars. We fought Vietnam, Korea, and Iraq without Congress authorizing war. Under the Constitution, only Congress can authorize war. And yet we fought three. With con and not even was the, the Constitution amendment amended to allow that to happen. So we've been outside. We, we have uh, circumvented and ignored the Constitution for many, many years. Right. Well, and I, I, I hesitate to go further, but you had, with regards to what I mentioned with regards to uh, uh, Bill Clinton was the last president to run a balanced budget at the federal level was a guy from Arkansas. We were agreeing right. that since 2015-2016, we're up 77% on our deficit. That was where we were agreeing, the exploding deficit, which is a problem that's nonpartisan. Right. I'm close. Is there anyone that would like to speak? You, anyone would like to speak for or against the bill? Senator Chesterfield, you're recognized to speak against the bill. Thank you, Mr. Chair, ladies and gentlemen of the Senate. Uh, one of those three things troubles me greatly. That's limiting government. What does that mean? For me, it meant uh, throughout history that I would be limited in those opportunities that were granted to me uh, because, or that were denied to me because of my race or my ethnicity. I am concerned about having a constitutional convention for the first time since 1787. And why? Because we have 27 amendments to the Constitution that have held through time. And now we're talking about doing to the Constitution what we ought to do in the electoral process, and that's sending home people who continue to expand the deficit. We have a simple solution. It doesn't take a constitutional convention. It takes the will to vote against people who have no respect for the economic stability of this state and this nation. That's not something that we need a constitutional convention for. I'm also very, very much concerned about, as we talk about limiting government, there is talk about freedom of religion. The Constitution says there can be no establishment of religion, and yet that's very much a part of the conversation. And if we go down that road, what happens to the plethora of individuals who have religions other than our own? I'm concerned also about who will represent each of the states as we talk about this Constitutional Convention. When we had the Constitutional Convention of 1787, there were but, what, 13 states. All of the individuals who put this together were white, and they were male, and they were moneyed. Will we again put together a convention that is white and male and money, or how will we do, or what will we do about making sure 
that this Constitutional Convention reflects the diversity that really is America. What will we do about the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment, which many people claim was legislative over, overreach when they were added to the Constitution? They're very near and dear to me. There is still one of the things that the President of the United States said he wanted was to look at the 14th Amendment. And that 14th Amendment is what gave me citizenship rights. And so I am concerned because it is very difficult. It is very difficult to change the Constitution, and it's difficult for a reason, because it has held for this country over the years. Only 27 times has it been changed. There have been 33 proposed amendments. Only 27 have been accepted, the first 10 of which are the Bill of Rights about which I care so much. And I fear, I fear that as we go down this road willy-nilly, that we are putting together a convention that may not look like me, may not care about me, may not recognize the diversity that is America, unlike the, the lack of diversity during that time. And in spite of that lack of diversity, those individuals put together a document that has lasted through time and has ultimately made me a citizen in this country. I would say leave things alone. Thank you, Senator. Any questions for Senator Chesterfield? Seeing none, is there someone that would like to speak for the bill? Senator Johnson, recognized to speak for the bill. Thank you, Mr. President. I rise on this issue with some reluctance to even speak my very first real speech in the well about this. It's a little bit of background. I want you all to know that uh, when I was born, my dad was a member of this body. My parents became engaged in the parking lot over here on the west side of the Capitol. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I was a page sitting right down here in the front. When I was 18 years old, I was the reading clerk standing there where Ann usually stands. I have so much respect for this body, and uh, I, I take everything we do here seriously. I appreciate each and every one of you as colleagues and friends. Uh, we don't do a lot of things here that are trivial, but this one sets a new bar. We're, we're charged with something that could, as Senator Stubblefield said, affect our children, our great-grandchildren. Uh, our Lieutenant Governor used a term once that I heard, and it was about our federal budget. He said it is unsustainable. And I can't even begin to enumerate the fiscal issues that Senator Stubblefield covered so carefully. But I want to talk about our responsibilities and, and a sobering moment I had about our republic. A few years ago, my wife had a reason to travel to Maryland for a business meeting, and she said, when we get through, I want to go visit as many of the president's homes in Virginia that we can. And of course, like many of you, I've already been to Mount Vernon and to Monticello and uh, even Ashlawn, which is Monroe's home. But newly open to the public, 
was Montpelier, who's James Madison's home. And I visited Montpelier, and there's a room there that you get to go on a tour. And it's, it's, it's tiny. It's about the size of our conference room over here on the east side of the Senate chamber. And this is the room, they told us, where James Madison read the books of the ages of, of Hammurabi and the, the Greeks and the Romans and, and tried to fashion what he thought our republic should be. And, and the, the work that he did, the result is the United States Constitution. And, and President Madison is known as the father of the Constitution. And the story that Senator Stubblefield mentioned about uh, uh, George Mason, Colonel Mason, and how he brought in at the, at the last minute, it's like, wait a minute, folks, we got one last little protection we have to put in here. And I think that's something we should stop and think about. Now, this whole process reminds me of some of y'all heard the story about the, the dam that broke somewhere and the old fellow was sitting on his porch and the sheriff came up and said, Joe, the, the, uh, the dam's broke. It's going to flood. You've got to leave. He says, no, sheriff, the Lord will protect me. And he, he came back soon in a, in, a, in a boat and the floodwaters were up about to the fellow's porch and he said, uh, sheriff... He said, I'm not worried. The Lord will protect me. So the sheriff gave me, he took one last try. He brought a helicopter and he flew over. By then Joe was up on the roof of the house. And he says, Joe, you're going to die. Please get in our helicopter and let us take you to safety. He says, no, no, the Lord will take care of me. So, of course, the floodwaters rose and Joe drowned. And he's at the pearly gates and uh, he meets the Lord. And he says, Lord... I, th I thought you would take care of me. And he says, well, I sent a car, a boat, and a helicopter. What more did you want? And that's kind of how I feel about Article 5. Everybody wants these solutions. And I think if, if James Madison and, and uh, other founding fathers were here, we'd say, well, we, we, need, you, we need some guidance on how we can, can get our republic back on track. And they're going to say, well, I sent you Article 5. Here it is. We, we haven't used it. And the reason we haven't used it, I think, is that when things got to be critical mass in our society, I think in my own case, some of you my generation, you remember that there was a saying, if you're old enough to fight, you're old, old enough to die in Vietnam, you're old enough to vote. And that's when we got the 18-year-old vote. And there was some rumblings about a convention of states at that time. Congress got in gear and got it passed. Sometimes we have to initiate things. We have to knock things off dead center. But remember, that Article 5 is not a dead letter. It was put in the Constitution for a reason by some very brilliant people. I believe divinely ordained people. I believe that truly... They did the Lord's work when they came up with that. And that's why, while we're one of the youngest nations in the world, we are the oldest constitutional republic. So I urge your support of this resolution and let's move forward to one more step toward making things better in America. Thank you, Mr. President. All right. I'll take questions for any. Any questions for Senator Johnson? Seeing none, I do have... Uh, uh, I had a hand up over here. Do you want to speak for or against the bill, sir? 
for the bill. Uh, recognize to speak against the bill, Senator Elliott. Thank you. Uh, um, recognized. Carry on. Um, I, I shan't be long at this um, discussion, I, I hope. Um, I have gotten lots of letters about this issue, and I got information that I uh, read and appreciated just as I was coming in. So one of the things I try to hold myself accountable to is making sure I respect at least both sides of an issue. And you know, many times there are more than just both sides. And I respect the fact that people feel very strongly about this and that this is something we ought to do. But I would suggest to you that we have so many blind spots and it's nobody's fault, but we just don't see them. And with all due respect, a case in point, um, Senator Johnson, is the privilege that you had to be here and to run around because your dad was in this chamber and have that opportunity and not think there was anything untoward about it, and there's not. But it gave you a faith and it gave you a comfort because the Constitution was written for certain people in this country. Even those folks who, as you say, were doing God's work they were not doing God's work for everybody. And so that's part of what informs me this time around, if we were to do this in this atmosphere. And just think about where we are now. In this atmosphere where we are so divided, and we're divided in ways that none of us can be proud of, I don't believe. And while I respect the fact that we think we ought to have it, it does give me great pause that if we were to have it in this environment, that's not exactly the way it was when the forefathers were doing God's work for some people. But I fear that's what a constitutional convention could end up being in this environment that we find ourselves now. And the last thing I want to say about this is I think we have become so lazy about our democracy that we look for shortcuts. And this is one of them. If the people in Washington are not doing what we want them to do, why in the world do we keep sending them back? To me, that's just lazy democracy. Just like term limits, that's just lazy democracy. So if we want to change it, we have a channel for changing it rather than asking us to have a convention. Why don't we get serious about doing what we need to do to elect the people who would be responsible? They go to Washington, they are not responsible. What do we do? We send them right back. And then we look for another way out. I suggest to you, as our founding fathers would have suggested, and as Jefferson certainly taught us, that our democracy depends on our participation. It depends on our participation, not workarounds, as I respectfully suggested to you, that's probably what this is. I'm just as uncomfortable today 
We're thinking about some kind of rewrite in the Constitution because what Senator Bond called to our attention, we don't know what might happen at this convention. I think it's a dangerous thing to do just for that reason. But even more so, I think it's even more dangerous if we keep looking for workarounds and being lazy about our democracy and not doing what we should do to hold people accountable. So I would ask you, with due respect, to vote no. Any questions for Senator Elliott? Seeing none, Senator Clark, would you still like to speak for the bill, sir? You're recognized to speak for the bill. Three quotes. The only thing to fear is fear itself. Insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's what we're doing currently with the federal government and our budget. And most importantly is this one. When the people find that they can vote themselves money, that will herald the end of the republic. Benjamin Franklin. The people have discovered that they can vote themselves money. Our Constitution, one of the reasons it's so great is that we didn't set up a democracy, we set up a republic. A democracy any group of us that has a majority can vote to do anything. But because of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, you can't keep me from practicing my religion if it's all of you against me. You can't keep me from speaking if it's all of you against me. Can't keep me from having a firearm if it's all of you against me. And we could go on down. And in this great Constitution, we have Article 5. And we have a way to fix things if things aren't being fixed. And we have what I think is an irrational fear after studying it of a runaway convention because it takes 34 states to agree completely on what we're going to have a constitutional convention about and what they, can, what they can look at, and that's all that they can look at. And regardless of what they do, it then takes 38 state legislatures or conventions to pass whatever they do. But here's the most important thing, why I ran a little over six years ago. As I told everyone, back then I had a 22-year-old and a 26-year-old that were not going to have the same opportunities that I had had. Dad taught economics along with history and English. And six years ago, no nation had been as far in debt as we were and recovered from it. No nation has ever been this far in debt and not suffered grave financial calamity. If there, I don't know that this will work. It seems to be a plausible answer, but I know what we're doing is not working and is headed for calamity. Just like I couldn't see Mount St. Helens erupting, but yet it did, it did. And as every other nation that has had this happen didn't, couldn't see that it was coming, Venezuela couldn't, 
couldn't see what was coming. It's there. It's coming here. And this is something that I can do to stop it. And so, of course, I'm voting yes. Thank you. Thank you. Senators, anyone wants to speak for or against the bill? Seeing none, are you close for your bill, Senator? You're recognized to close for SJR 3. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Colleagues, Senator Clark mentioned Mount St. Helens. There was an individual by the name of Harry Truman living on Mount St. Helens, not the president. He was warned just a couple of weeks before it erupted that he needed to get off the mountain because there was a lot of activity going on underneath. He said, I've lived here 60 years and it's never blown. Guess where Mr. Truman is today? He's 40 feet below volcanic ash on the side of Mount St. Helens. Senator Elliott, I fear a lot of things too. I also fear George Soros and 250 other groups. I fear our, our, uh, our country is uh, turning to socialism to replace uh, socialism to replace a constitutional republic. That's what I fear. Uh, whenever George Soros and 250 other groups have adamantly fought this initiative from day one, tells me a whole lot about Article 5. It tells me they are afraid of losing their power, their control over Washington, D.C., and it tells me they are afraid of the American people. That is who the founders were concerned with more than anything else. They gave all of the states complete sovereignty. And they said, your powers are to be numerous and the federal governments are to be few. That is no longer the case. Mr. President, I'm closed. Thank you very much. Any objection to rolling the vote? <laughs> you gotta try. Madam Secretary, would you please call the roll? Ballinger? Aye. Bledsoe? Aye. Bond? No. Caldwell? Aye. Cheatham? No. Chesterfield? No. Clark? Aye. Cooper? Aye. Davis? Aye. Dismang? Dismang? Eads? Eads? Elliott? No. English? No. Flippo? Flowers, Garner, yes. Hammer, yes. Hendren, Hendren, Hester, yes. Hickey, uh, Hill, yes. Ingram, oh. Irvin, Blake Johnson, Blake Johnson, Mark Johnson, Letting, no. Mallet, no. Pitch, Rapert, yes. Rice, <coughs> Sample, no. Stubbefill, yes. Sturge, no. Teague, no. Wallace. Aye. Members, is there anyone that would like to change their vote? Hendren is aye. Anyone else that would like to change their vote? Blake Johnson, aye. Last call. Anyone wants to change their vote? Cast up the ballot. A vote of 19 yes, 13 against, two non-voting. Uh, resolution passes. Check out more content at conventionalstates.com slash pod.
Thank you for listening.